Good morning, church. It's a shame not to be able to meet today face-to-face, but it's an encouragement to be able to share online uh, as much as we can. We're continuing our series on the book of Acts, and today, as we've already read, we're going to be studying Acts chapter 10, which is the story of Peter and Cornelius. It's a very long story, it's a very unusual story, and it's a story of a crucial moment in church history. It would be great if you had your Bibles there to keep them open as we look at chapter 10, so I can draw your attention to one or two key verses. But before we start going through that passage, I'd like to point out what I think is the main idea And it doesn't come from Acts chapter 10, it comes from the following chapter. Acts 11 verse 18 reads, And they, meaning all the disciples, glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That, I think, expresses the main idea of this story. And that's what I'd like you to come away with to meditate on. And that's hopefully what we'll unpack in the next few minutes. Let me provide a little bit of context. So far in the story of Acts, the disciples have received the Holy Spirit on that spectacular day of Pentecost in chapter 2. Peter has been leading the other disciples, performing miracles of healing and boldly challenging the Jewish leaders who are trying to shut them down. Despite the persecution up to and including the execution of Stephen, who is a martyr for the faith, the gospel message continues to spread. The story today opens with Cornelius seeing a vision of an angel appearing before him and telling him to go to find Peter. I want to dwell on this for a moment to emphasize just how strange this is. We've not met Cornelius before, and he's not a disciple. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. Peter was a devout Jew. If we know anything about the story of Jesus, we know that Romans and Jews had a vexed history. The Romans had a great empire, the greatest that the world had ever seen up to that point, spanning three continents, Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. The, you can, you can sort of imagine the degree of arrogance, perhaps, that was part of the Roman psyche. And under Roman rule, the Jews were allowed some religious freedom, but they never assimilated. They always looked different, ate different kinds of food, and uh, worshipped a different god. So relations between Jews and Romans, at best, were suspicion, and at worst, outright hostility and the occasional violent uprising. The Jews, for their part, were not even to associate with the Gentiles. It was unlawful for a Jew to eat, for example, with a non-Jew. And there was this expectation among the Jews that the Messiah would be a 
a kind of military hero, a conqueror, who would get rid of the Romans and have a violent uprising. So for a Jew to associate with a Gentile, not only was it unlawful, but it it looked like collaborating with the enemy. Peter, as a Jew, is bound by the law of God, as set out in the Old Testament. And I would hasten to add that we, as modern-day Christians, are also bound by the law of God, as set out in the Old Testament. We, as modern-day Christians, have not been released from the requirement, for example, in God's law, not to murder or not to slander other people or not to commit acts of sexual immorality. But, of course, there are different categories of law in God's law. And the book of Leviticus sets out not only God's moral law, those things that um, we hold to today, but also certain ceremonial laws or ritual laws. And they pertained to things like, in this passage, what to eat and not eat. To take the example of food, then, certain animals were considered to be clean, and certain animals were unclean. And that didn't mean that those animals in and of themselves were somehow bad or evil, but it was a a command of God to act a certain way so that the, the chosen people of Israel looked different from the surrounding nations. So shellfish and pork, for example, were eaten by many of the nations surrounding in, uh, surrounding Israel in the ancient world, and they're eaten today by Christians, and that's, that's fine. But in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was commanded not to eat those things as a symbol of God's choice of them, of, of their difference from other nations. So the food, then, is, is kind of secondary, and it is a little bit in this passage, too, and I'll explain how that works. It's a symbol for people. It's a symbol for Jew versus Gentile. Therefore, when God addresses the dietary laws in this vision that Peter sees with the animals coming down from heaven in the great sheet and Peter hearing the command, rise, kill, and eat, and what God has made clean do not call unclean, um, the meaning of this, and Peter understands this, is not just about animals and food. It's about people. If you have a look at chapter 10, verse 23, Peter has seen this vision. He hears the commands. It happens three times for emphasis, so you know it's important. Peter is still perplexed. He doesn't fully understand. And yet, when the men from Cornelius, these Romans, these Gentiles, arrive at his house... He understands enough to invite them in to be his guests. Again, in verse 28, he's obedient to the Holy Spirit, even when it seems to go against convention, telling Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. What an example of Christian hospitality Peter and Cornelius both are to us. Peter first extends that to Cornelius and then Cornelius reciprocates. 
how surprising that is, particularly given the context of Jew-Gentile suspicion and hostility, particularly given the conventions that Peter has been raised to follow. You see, one of the tensions that runs throughout the entire Bible is this tension between the nation of Israel as God's chosen people on one hand and the Gentiles or the non-Jews, all the other nations of the world, uh, which for most of us really, I suppose, includes us. That runs throughout the whole Bible. Um, But at the same time, there are these glimpses of a future time when God will reveal himself to all nations, which as Christians, we understand happens in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the way his followers spread that message. You remember, if you go all the way back to before the nation of Israel even existed, God promises to Abraham, not just that he will have many descendants, but that in him, all nations will be blessed. So there are these glimpses all throughout the Bible. And even though Jesus' own ministry, his healing, his teaching, and his death uh, in Jerusalem, really focused on the nation of Israel, remember his final words after his resurrection to his followers. Go and make disciples of all nations. It seems incredible that Jesus would leave something as important as the entire mission to the non-Jewish world, up to a handful of people, um, imperfect people at that. And yet, we know from our reading of Acts that Jesus' disciples have not been abandoned. They're not alone. His Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, is with them. The Holy Spirit which came upon them in power on the day of Pentecost is still with them. We see that when Peter preaches the good news about Jesus to Cornelius and his household. The Holy Spirit comes on them with power in verse 44. In fact, that same phrase, thinking about the day of Pentecost and Acts chapter 2, that phrase from the prophecy in the book of Joel in the Old Testament Uh, I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all nations. That phrase, pouring out, occurs there at Pentecost, and it occurs in this passage as Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household. So there's a clear parallel between these two scenes. The meaning, therefore, is clear. God has withheld no part of himself. He spared nothing in giving himself in the person of Jesus, to Jew and Gentile. There is now no ethnic barrier to the good news about Jesus. Let me return to the verse from chapter 11 describing the disciples' response to what happened. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What does this mean for us, a gathered community of mostly Gentile believers in Penrith in the year 2021? Let me give three areas of application. First, 
Praise God that we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the evidence of our belonging to Christ. He transforms us from what we once were to what we, uh, to what we, what we are becoming, the new creation that uh, Christ is at work in us to complete. The, the word repentance there, I think, is key. Our repentance is our turning away from our selfish desires and turning towards the person of Jesus. Our desire for his glory, the glory of the one who died and rose again uh, so that we might walk in newness of life. That desire is a gift from God. We can't take credit for it, and repentance is is also not a one-off for the believer. Rather, it is the daily attitude of the disciple. Luke, who wrote Acts, uh, also wrote in his account of Jesus' life in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, this is Jesus speaking, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you have this attitude of repentance, glorify the God who saves, that you have been given his very spirit in you as a guarantee of what he has done for you. Second, we should celebrate ethnic diversity in the church. According to the last census in 2016, there are 79 different home languages spoken in the city of Penrith. Praise God that the the good news of, of Jesus Christ is for all nations. In our culture, in the 21st century, in the West, we take this idea about inclusion, inclusiveness, we take this for granted. But historically... And thinking about the first century, it's really the exception rather than the rule. It was unheard of in the time and place when Peter first saw this vision. And a brief glance even at the last hundred years of world history reminds us of the horror that is unleashed when we we divide people according to ethnicity and lay down really harsh lines. Racism is sinful, and we as the church, we need to be blameless in this area. Nor do we seek to make ethnicity or culture the entire basis of our identity. Our ethnicity, our background, is part of our identity, and it is God-given. Yet this is not the ultimate reality of being in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul takes up this issue again of of the relationship, the proper relationship uh, between Jew and Gentile in the church. And he imagines the church as the body of Christ in whom we, different nations, are reconciled with each other. And not only that, but in the church, God is recreating humanity in a way that transcends barriers of race and ethnicity. Praise God that who we are in Christ is more significant than any part of our cultural background or ethnicity. Third and finally, we need to preach the gospel. Notice that when Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household, what happens? 
the Holy Spirit comes with power. We need to preach the gospel faithfully when we have the opportunity and trust that God will act. God will use that as he promises to do. Now, we don't know exactly how Cornelius stood before God in the beginning of chapter 10. But we do know that he still needed to hear the good news about Jesus. Otherwise, God never would have sent an angel to tell him to find Peter. Church, we find ourselves in a multicultural world, which is a great thing in many ways. For example, we can follow the command of Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, We can be hospitable to those who are different from us, just like Peter and Cornelius practiced. We can do all that without leaving our own city. That's incredible. In fact, by the time uh, Peter, this is just an aside about hospitality and the gospel, the preaching, uh, by the time he's writing his first epistle in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, Peter commands both the preaching of the word and hos- hospitality. And they're kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. If we're practicing both of these commands then, the church will look multi-ethnic. I give thanks to God that in our own congregation there are people from a variety of backgrounds from right around the world. The multi-ethnic makeup of the church flows directly from the free and gracious, uh, the forgiveness of sins that Peter in verse 38 says is available in, uh, in Jesus Christ. But, and this is a big but, we must not compromise the gospel message in our efforts to make disciples of all nations. By definition, the word disciple means one who learns by imitating someone. The person of Jesus is central. The gospel, which the Jew, the Gentile, the Muslim, the Hindu, the atheist, all so desperately need to hear and be transformed by. This gospel is that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the message that uh, through Jesus, through his death, his blood that was shed on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, We can put on his righteousness. We can walk in newness of life. And we can enjoy the benefits of sonship because Jesus was your beloved son in whom you are well pleased. We thank you for this message. We thank you for your Holy Spirit which has been poured out freely for us all. We ask that he would fill us, empower us, and enable to obey your commands to go forth and make disciples of all nations. In Jesus' name, amen.